What's up, what's up? It's your man Sam, host of Just Talk With Sam Podcast. Just Talk With Sam Podcast. Man, we got a great one for you guys today. Look, I like having interviews on this podcast, and sometimes when we have interviews, man, I learn so much more about my person that I'm interviewing. I learned a lot today, but one of the things, I came in the game knowing so much more. Um, This man, Jonathan Wolf. Now, he is known for being an American composer. Specifically, one of his greatest projects was doing all the music for the hit TV show Seinfeld. However, he's done more than just Seinfeld. Oh, don't get it twisted. We're going to talk a lot of Seinfeld in this episode. I love Seinfeld. Seinfeld is easily one of my favorite TV shows. Look, we're going to jump into it. But we're going to jump into his career. We're going to jump into what he's doing now, other shows he did the music for, and quite honestly, uh, what he's doing now. And one of the things that he's doing now, he has this new project called the Seinfeld Soundtrack. Please get it wherever you can find music. It's so worth it. I have it. I just happen to be a fan of the show Seinfeld, and I listen to it, and I feel good. And if you want to talk with him or send him a a tweet or send him a IG or wherever he is on social media, all across the board, it's Seinfeld Music Guy. Yeah, very subtle. SeinfeldMusicGuy.com. Seinfeld Music Guy everything. IG, Twitter, Seinfeld Music Guy. Check him out. Jonathan Wolf. This was a great interview. And you learn so much about this guy. And you... like me personally, it made me go back and let, uh, listen to a few more episodes of not only Seinfeld, other shows he did that we get into. But before we jump into this podcast, we got we got to do it. All things related to Just Talk With Sam podcast can be found at samshownation.com. Yes, you're home for everything related to the Just Talk With Sam podcast. We got it all. Whether it be... Um, it's all right there. One of the things that's right there on the home page and current promotions page, there is on the home, uh, uh, right there on the home page of samshownation.com. There's a donate button. Hit that donate button. Click the button. Give whatever makes you feel like a good person. I promise every single solitary cent goes into this podcast and make it a bigger, better, greater podcast. Also, just talk with Sam podcast. Maybe you want a little bang for your buck. Maybe you want a little swag. You can always go to samshownation.com and you can hit the swag link. You can hit the store link. You can get your shirts. You can get your hats. You can get whatever you need to get all right there and, you know, show your love for the podcast. All you just talk with Sam swag right there at samshownation.com. Speaking of samshownation.com and the podcast itself, you can hit that podcast link and you can listen to all of your episodes right then and there on the podcast page. Maybe you want to hear it again. Maybe you want to catch up. Maybe it's all right there. But maybe you listen to podcasts differently. We are wherever podcasts can be found. So we're on Amazon. We're on Stitcher. We're on TuneIn. We're on CastBox. We're on Spotify. My Spotify people hit that follow button and you will be notified immediately whenever we release a new episode. Wherever podcasts can be found, the big dog of them all, iTunes, Apple Music, it's all right there. So please check us out. We got a few sponsors this week and um, let's pay some bills before we sit down. 
talk about the magic that is Mr. Jonathan Wolf. But our first sponsor is the good folks at Honey. Who are we kidding? It's the internet. You're going to be, you're buying stuff, you're online shopping. We may be going into another lockdown. Who knows what's happening? But I know what you're going to do. You're going to go to samtronation.com. You're going to click that honey button. Save some money with that honey. You go to samtronation.com. You click that honey link. As you hit that honey link, you get a device. It installs on your phone, your computer, whatever. Whenever you shop online, I shop online. And you get to that promo code button right when you're about to check out. You hit that honey button, it scours the internet looking for promo codes, discounts, anything they need to do to save you money. It's right there and it don't cost you a dime. Only thing we ask you to do is go to samtronation.com. You click that honey link, shops you normally would, save some money with that honey. Save it. Save some money with honey. The best place to get honey, samtronation.com. Right there on the current promotions page, it's a big orange H. It says honey. It's right there. Save some money with some honey with your online shopping. The next sponsor comes from the good folks at Paramount Plus. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about old TV shows and syndicated shows and stuff we like. That means you like TV. And if you like TV, I know a streaming service that's going to work for you. Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus have live sports, breaking news, and a mountain of entertainment. They got peak originals, peak captivating characters. You can explore new worlds and enjoy returning fan favorites and growing collection of the Paramount Plus originals. They got peak competition. You could catch Edge of Your Seat action with CBS Sports, whether it be NFL, soccer, along other highlights, replays, expert analysis. You're going to need that because fantasy football season is right around the corner. Lord knows I'm using that. You get peak news. You can never miss out on breaking CBS news, award-winning reports, in-depth interviews with the CBSN National and CBSN Local. And you could be in the loop 24-7, 365. And if you're doing a family thing, kick back with peak family time. Kick back with the whole family and take in the best of classic and new animated series. Or let your little ones stream with our kid-friendly profiles. It's all right there, and the best place to get Paramount Plus is Sam Show Nation right there. On the current promotions page, you can get plans as low as $4.99. Yes, $4.99 for Paramount Plus. Your cup of coffee costs more than that. So please, go to Paramount Plus via SamShowNation.com, $4.99. Get yourself a mountain of entertainment. It's all right there. SamShowNation.com, Paramount Plus. And lastly, certainly not leastly, the big dog of them all. You know who they are. Amazon.com. Amazon.com got everything from A to Z. And one of the things they got from A to Z, it starts with S, is called the Seinfeld Soundtrack by my man Jonathan Wolf. I'm pretty sure he will greatly appreciate it. If you picked up the Seinfeld soundtrack right there at samshownation.com, you click that Amazon button and go ahead. Seinfeld soundtrack by my man Jonathan Wolf. Go ahead, grab it. I'm sure he would appreciate it. And you can tell him you got it by going to all of his socials or you go to the website at Seinfeld Music Guy. When you tell him that, you can relive all your favorite moments from Seinfeld. 
And we're going to relive a few of those moments on Seinfeld right now. And I want to thank the good folks at Amazon.com for letting me do this read. So we're going to relive a lot of these moments in this interview. So strap back. And I'm about 90 seconds. I want to talk to my man, Jonathan Wolf. Let's get into it. This is Just Talking Sam Podcast, y'all. Just Talking Sam Podcast. Just put your name on it. If you don't talk about it, be about it. Hey, I don't know this till like right now. Seriously. Subscribe, right review on iTunes, Joe. Hey, Jonathan, thank you so much for jumping into the podcast, man. This is this is great. It is an honor to be here in Sam Show Nation. Oh, man. Jonathan, I want to say this up front. Now, I want to sit down and we're going to go to the full gambit of this interview. But if you allow me a few seconds just to fanboy out just a little bit, just, just, just a little bit before we jump into it, because one of my all-time favorite shows easily in my top five is Seinfeld. I love it for every reason imaginable, but when I, especially getting into this interview, um, I was just watching Seinfeld just to watch it, but you are the unofficial cast member of Seinfeld because without you the the theme songs the the vibe is off and without your music Seinfeld is essentially a dark a very very dark look at four very different individuals without the laughs without the um, for lack of a better term it, and if I don't mean to be offensive with it but just that offbeat style of music that was very different at the time so i want to thank you for doing the show mainly because um i don't i think better people have interviewed you than me have said it your music changed the dynamic of essentially television not just with that show with other things you've done as well so that is a long-fisted way to say welcome to the podcast jonathan love to have you here I'm so glad, you know, so much time and distance has passed since those Seinfeld production years that now, like you, Sam, I kind of view the show as a fan. And that is exactly how 
I approached making the playlist for the soundtrack album. What would a fan really like on this album? So th that was the main criteria for choosing stuff for the album. Well, let's back it up for a second. Before we jump into Seinfeld, before we get all crazy with that, um, let's start with you. Like, where did you grow up? Where did where did this where's this beacon of talent come from? Where, tell me about yourself a little bit. I mean, you're more than just a music. Don't get it twisted. You're good. But um, yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? I was raised as a child in what at the time was a very small pond in Louisville, Kentucky. I got great music training, really thorough, really eclectic music training. I started in a conservatory and then had private teachers. There was nobody in my family who were artists or musicians of any kind, but they were really supportive. So in this, at the time, kind of little community of musicians in Louisville, I got really valuable, practical, professional experiences as a child, basically. I learned, I, I joined the union at 13 because I was already working in the hotels. And by the time I was through with high school, I was doing all the studio work in Louisville. I was writing music for the radio and TV stations. So I had a lot of really good experience before I moved to LA. I was 17. Mm. Now, when you sit down and you're watching, well, let, let's start there. A 17 year old is holding it down in the Louisville area, period, point blank. That's already an accomplishment because I mean, most people haven't even declared a major in college and you're just like, all right, this is my career. I'm good. What, what you had to look like this, I don't know, young buck to your contemporaries. How was that feeling when you, you know, what, one year from a driver's license and now you're holding down the entire Louisville, Kentucky music scene? We're in agreement that that was weird. Okay. That a, that a kid was doing this work, but there wasn't a whole lot of competition for those jobs. Uh, at the time in the mid seventies, production music for radio and TV came from larger markets from nearby Cincinnati, Nashville, Indianapolis. And I saw a need for local delivery of it. I can move fast. I could do it cheap. Uh, so th that is how I kind of elbowed my way into those doors. And I didn't go to school much. I was busy working. So I was not a particularly great high school student, but it prepared me. It was on the job training for what came next in LA. And yes, it was a little weird. And you pointed out a good thing, Sam, that in Louisville, I was well known. I had a reputation. People respected me. I could have lived my life and my career like that as a local musician. And I'd have been happy. That would have been a pretty good choice for me. But you know how when Harry Potter turned 17, and he had to go someplace else. Well, that was me too. I just felt this magnetic pull towards okay. LA. And I, I had to, to follow. There were all these 
massive events with gravitational pull happening. For example, Herbie Hancock was recording with Stevie Wonder in LA and I don't know, Michael McDonald was recording with the Doobie Brothers in LA and Ramsey Lewis was recording with Earth, Wind and Fire in LA. All of these seismic events were happening. It was a party and I should be there. Uh, maybe the biggest was when Joe Walsh joined the Eagles and I just could not resist anymore. It was as, uh, as if I was being summoned okay. to LA for the next step. So I moved to LA. I was 17 and landed there and started working. So now that you got this beacon to go to LA, I mean, it didn't always start with Seinfeld. I did a little digging. I mean, you uh, made music for Caroline in the City, Who's the Boss, Will and Grace, just to name a few. Uh, Perfect Strangers, Fantasy Island. So Falcon Crest, Love Boat, just to name things you've worked on. And one of the things, like the unofficial themes of this podcast is we, we're good with pop culture. So every now and then in a podcast, myself or any guest, my boy BK or whoever the regulars are, we will honestly name a theme song and just break in a song because that that time, that that late 70s, early 80s vibe of music and television meshed. It was like, if I couldn't get you in a theme song, it wasn't worth watching the show. So was that what led you to L.A.? Did it did that was that the thing like I want to work in TV or was it a musical aspect or a marriage of the two? I was 17. I had no idea <laughs> where I was headed. There was no clear path. When you're 17, you think you're going to live forever. So you're willing to take crazy risks. And in my case, these were positive risks. Uh, so yes, I did love screen music. I would think I was five years old. The first time I heard Henry Mancini's Pink Panther. Mm. And, and from that moment on, it was a lifelong love affair with screen music. And it defined for me the word cool. Okay. Okay. You know, that that music you hear and then you go, that, that is cool. Now, I know Miles has Birth of the Cool and there are all these other things that are cool and there's cool in the gang. But for me, that really connected me to that word because all the other kids in my preschool class like to use that word. And I had no idea what it really meant. It's more of a feeling than a word. You just. Yeah. Yeah. That feel. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The feel. But that feeling. Man, it hit me hard when uh, Henry Mancini reached out to me the same way that the artists on the radio did. And uh, that certainly had an influence on the next 12 years of my life in Louisville. I became more interested in what was going on in film and TV music. And of course, about the same time as Pink Panther, those Sherman brothers were schooling me on clever songwriting Mary Poppins came out. Now it's all about those songs. So, like, here's what I'm noticing right now. And correct me if I'm wrong. You were inspired by pop music at the time. And I don't want to age you. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying there's a level of pop music and there's a level of classical 
I guess, jam in you because some of the reference you gave out and um, I was doing a little digging. Um, and in your, in your, in previous interviews, you were taught piano lessons by Jamie Ambersoll at a very young age. Uh, my initial piano studies were before I met Jamie. I met Jamie, I think I was about 12. Okay. So for those five Still years, young. I became a Jamie Abersold disciple. Uh, there were four of us who were raised in his basement. Now that sounds creepy, Sam, but it yeah, was not. It, it was awesome and wonderful that he used us as his lab rats uh, to create his approach to jazz education which is now global and what a wonderful experience that was to be challenged every day i would go in that basement and just be challenged okay. you know as i'm a parent i don't know are you a parent sam yes i am so i'm surprised we... my son have not jumped into this interview yet but we're good yeah well well we as parents spend some energy talking about the dangers of negative risks you know the list oh, drugs yeah. and binge drinking and unsafe sex and texting while driving we know the list it's boring and we repeat it over and over again right. but what happened in jamie's basement was positive risk i was constantly playing with superior players and the music was never easy he would always challenge and we got too comfortable with giant steps, he would change the key on it. And it was terrifying. But that confidence that comes from fighting through that scary moment with courage and coming out the other end, it is what we want for all of our kids is to find their voice. And that helped me find my voice in that, that basement. By the way, Jamie who is a world-class musician. I was just I about to ever, get to that, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard him play, but, yeah. but by the way, yet, yesterday he turned 82, mm -hmm. um, and he still is swinging. Uh, the, but he didn't make his living from being a world-class musician. He made his living as a world-class business person. Mm -hmm. And even at my young age, I looked at him and I pointed and said, I want that. That's what I want. I want to be able to make money as a business person and be a great musician. And I took that mentality, that connection between commerce and art to L.A. with me. Now, here's where I get um, I, I have two follow up questions from that, because and that we're going to jump back into you. Getting oh, by into the way, LA. I'm going to interrupt you. I want to thank you for mentioning Jamie Abersold. Truly a mentor. Now, that's the reason I'm getting at that. I say young age, you're 12. Did you know of his pedigree? Did you know of it? Well, you probably know of his skill because you're there with him. But did you know of his reputation? Did you know did. or was this just, quote unquote, piano lessons, you know? Yeah, it was not piano lessons. He's not really a piano teacher. This was jazz training. Okay. But and it was usually part of a group. It was, it was, there were a group of four of us that we trained. And I only knew by reputation locally, because remember, this was before 
he was famous. I am this the the year right now. In case you're listening in the future, right. is 2021. 20, I am 62. Okay. And this so this was early 70s, and Jamie was not a household name yet. Mm. There was no internet, so he mostly owned the back four pages of Downbeat magazine. Uh, but even at that age, as soon as I walked in, I knew that this was special, that he was a special kind of a teacher. And even things like the basketball at his house. First of all, Jamie's a serious baller. And we would take breaks, go out, at play basketball. What's that? <laughs> I have bags. Even still at 80, he's, he's still doing well, it? Well, he has some age-related issues, so he no longer plays in games, but he can still, I mean, he'll hit 30 free throws in a row. Mm. He shoots threes like crazy. You can't leave him open or he'll he'll punish you for it. But even that, that was a lesson for us, because just like in basketball where you got to make your best play away from the ball, you get better by playing with superior ballers in jazz. There are no notes when you're improvising and everybody else around you is doing the same thing. It's like a moving court and you have to learn to improvise in music the same way you do in basketball. So it was all a wonderful learning, challenging, growing experience for me. And because of that adrenaline that was always happening at Jamie's, I never felt the need to do drugs or alcohol or anything else on that negative risk list. Makes sense. So now you got this, you have this unusual, for lack of a better term, but positive backstory. You held down Kentucky. You got the call in to go to L.A. What is your first move in L.A. now? I mean, you have you got chops. Clearly, you're young. You're 17. School involved or you just L.A. just to be in L.A. Tell me what's going on in your head at that time, Jonathan. Well, I pretended to go to college for a few weeks uh, at USC. I had a four-year ride there, but I got busy almost instantly doing work for the studios. I got so big. It was a question between, let's see, do I spend eight hours under headphones playing on records or do I go to my English 101 class? So... (laughs) school lost out on that i did have another mentor after jamie when i moved to la you you joined the union i switched my membership from louisville to los angeles and you get this book this nice thick book the directory and it has people's phone numbers in it legends you know demigods of music that i'm seeing their names in here and i just i saw claire fisher's name and i went can't that can't be there's a phone number here so i picked up the phone i called claire fisher and uh, somehow talked my way into his house and then he became my mentor for a while that's not boy huh? you just pick up the phone and die Man. i did and his, his initial reaction was well i you know i'm not i'm busy i don't i'm, I'm doing stevie wonder and shaka Khan. i'm busy i, I cannot I don't teach, never taught. And so I I think I said, well, can I at least just come to your front door and shake your hand? And then, of course, I talked my way in and we sat down at the piano and started working. And I I 
told him how I've been his student for years anyway, break, breaking down his charts for the high-lows. And he's just an amazing guy. Uh, and so he, by the end of that evening, he said, okay, I'll teach you. Right. And so I, I had a teacher. Uh, then I got even too busy for that. And I started working the studios, the TV and film studios. Right. We're happy to have a young utility guy who did not need to sleep. When you're young, you don't sleep so much. Yeah, so I get it. I get it. I, you know, you got the adrenaline going. So I worked you're every hungry. day, long days, and I was hungry because I didn't have any money. Uh, and the studios treated me like a Swiss Army multi-purpose utility tool for musical chores mm -hmm. and anything that remotely smelled like music even if it was tangentially related to music they knew they could call wolf okay. to take care of the job and in that way i not only got more experience but i made relationships i met people and who respected my work had faith in my abilities and confidence in my professionalism and that I did that for 10 years. And after 10 years of doing chores, I realized something that Sam, while I made plenty of money, I mean, this paid really, really well. I owned two houses in LA full of gear, but it was not a well-managed career. I had no control over the telephone told me every day where to go and what to do when I get there. And more importantly, no idea long-term where I was headed. So after 10 years, I, I started reading books, books about small business best practices and entrepreneurial principles, how to start a business, how to have employees, marketing, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I took all that money in the houses and stuff and sold them all and bought a building in Burbank, California, on Burbank Boulevard, right in the heart of Studio District, where I wanted to be. And I sent letters to all these people who had been so kind and supportive for me for those last 10 years. And I thanked them for all for trusting me with those assignments. Now, stop that. I'm no longer available for those assignments. I am a composer. Here's okay. my new business. Let's do business. And then I held my breath, Sam, because I may have just nuked the last 10 years of my life, scorched earth. It has to be scary, but you're it doing was. that was... thing that most people do. They bet on themselves. You've done the legwork. I mean, you were brought up at it as a child to some degree. And then you have been doing, as you call it, chores for the last decade. Yeah, you got to kind of step out on faith. You got to. Your decade of what they, what they call it the um, ten thousand hours outliers. Yeah, yeah you, you well, did. Mine were more than ten thousand hours, but yeah, that that's exactly the the theory behind it. And I held my breath until all those letters these had stamps and envelopes because there was no email. Mm -hmm. um, when they started arriving at their destinations all over Hollywood it's like little switches flipped and people shrugged and said, gee, that's too bad. He was a good utility guy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then they started throwing me little songwriting and composing assignments, which I had done a few of along the way during those 10 years. Sometimes people needed a song and they needed it right away or 
scene need to be rescored or dance numbers, whatever. Okay. And I did a couple of series during those 10 years too. I, I started with a series called square pegs, which was my hey, first. I remember that. You're that the one. That is a yeah. young, young Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah. It introduced Sarah Jessica Parker and Tracy Nelson and Jamie Gertz and Merrick Buttrick and me. Um, and, it was a wonderful experience, and I had been I I was the composer for that show. I did every episode. I wasn't hired originally to be the composer. I was just doing more chores for some other composer in New York who was going to send me stuff, and I would orchestrate it and produce it, record it, deliver it. But apparently, that was a misunderstanding, and he never showed. So I was there. I took the job. That's, That's how I got my first music buy full screen credit up to that point it was always special music or additional music or i was in the rotation of composers for for example remember there were nighttime soaps dallas yeah. knots landing falcon crest, falcon dynasty, crest Colby. Uh, dynasty come yeah, on man. i was on i was on all of them um and again, but it wasn't a steady gig. It wasn't every week. It wasn't my show. Right. Square Pegs was the first show that was, as, this is my turf. And it was a great experience for me. Now, you named those nighttime dramas and um, Square Pegs. And if memory serves me right, I'm remembering the theme songs of those. And they were more, quote unquote, traditional. Yeah, I did not write any of those okay. themes. Okay, not. Uh, no, I remember. I'm still doing chores here. They're not hiring me to write themes for these big shows. I was I was doing the the crappy jobs on those shows, which I was happy for. Uh, for example, on Square Pegs, it was one of the characters uh, Merrick Buttrick played uh, called Johnny Slash, and he had a band and he sang songs. And of course, I wrote all those songs, and it's, it was music within the show. Uh, same thing for those nighttime soaps. I wrote a bunch of, okay, here's something that I don't think has ever come up in an interview, Sam. You ready oh, I for like this? this? I like those. Go ahead. My, I have a special distinction in Hollywood, and that is I'm probably the worst actor who ever appeared on screen. I had a recurring weekly role on Knott's Landing as John the Piano Player. I'm going to look that up now. Yeah, there was it was a, there was a story arc with Lisa Hartman was the actor, right? Actress, and uh, she was a singer. I was her sidekick. I was the musician sidekick, and boy, I was just terrible <laughs> as an actor. I'm going but to they look knew that me. up. Yeah, they knew me from the music department anyway. They knew me on the show because I've been doing chores for a few years on Knott's Landing at this point. So they they put me in at that part, not knowing how terrible I was going to be on camera. So I get this phone call one night from a wonderful director named Kim Friedman, who I was actually working with at the time on Square Pegs. And she called me at home because that's the only way you could call people yeah, back then, in yeah. 1982. And I thought she was calling about something about Square Pegs. She says, no, I'm, I'm in the rotation of directors now for Knott's Landing. And they're going through the Bible with me and talking about each of the characters. And they got to this one character and they said, oh, him. Yeah, we really like him, but don't try to direct him. He just gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and she thought it was important that I should know what they tell visiting directors about me. Now, here's where it gets interesting, because um, I'm going to jump around a little bit in history. Well, I'll give you a little backstory. I have a special connection to Nice Landing, mainly because that used to be my mom, one of my mom's favorite shows. Mm-hmm. So Nice Landing was appointment television for her. If you had to be there in front of your TV when Nice Landing came on. I, at the time, I'm a kid. I don't really grasp a lot of the storylines. I'm just sitting there bored out of my mind. But now as I got older, you know, you, you watch it and you know what's happening. And so, yeah, I'm going to look for that now. But you're also, and I'm jumping in history now. We'll get to this in a second. You're also, if memory serves me right, in Seinfeld, because I am a big Seinfeld guy. And this, this is, you're, we're going to talk about the soundtrack and all that other good stuff later. You were the male, you were the piano player in Mel Tour May episode, weren't you? Yes. Anything related there to music go. on stage, I handled. This was my show, and I was jealously protective and territorial concerning Seinfeld. So yes, when I saw that Mel Torme was coming on the show, of course, I went down and accompanied him live on piano. And that was, as the kids would say, hashtag good day at work mm-hmm. um sorry before we jump in the I, I want to talk about this you're you you bet on yourself a little bit you are now with square pegs you're still doing chores and then you're doing stuff for the dramas um if memory serves me right i think you did some on 21 jump street around that time I did, I did, I did not work on 21 Jump Street, but I did create a bunch of source music for them. Meaning mm. when they go into a bar or a restaurant where there's cool happening, groovy music going on, I created that music. It was Got music it. that was part of the background of a scene. So yeah, that, that was my connection to 21 Jump Street. It was just, I did a, a song dump on them and they, they used a bunch of episodes. Now this, I got to ask this question because I'm trying to go through the timeline here of um, just your career and as you're going. This is one of my favorite theme songs. I need to know what you did to it. Uh, who's the boss? <laughs> yeah. Who's that the was boss? you, I right? Work. I, yeah, I loved working on Who's the Boss. It was a really great job. And uh, may I mentioned before relationships. Right. Uh, it has helped me establish a relationship with Tony Danza who is very demanding. He really? expects people to rise to his level of professionalism and expertise and preparation. And so he and I got along great. And after that, Tony, who knows how many projects he's done after right. that, but until the day I retired, he had me on every single project. So I was grateful for that loyalty that Tony showed me and I wrote several themes for shows that he produced Mm -hmm. on who's the boss in answer to your question, Sam, the theme for who's the boss happened six years before I got there. It's written by, uh, it's a couch full of people, but the right, the words were by the executive producers. It's a little wordy and it's a little sing songy. And the first thing they wanted me to do was try and man it up a little bit. Can we, Butch that song up a little bit, give it some testosterone. No, and I just no, you said, I can no, I cannot. I said, I'll write you a new one. And the, the execs were were very self-aware and they said, now we like that 
that money, the royalty money from having written that, <laughs> written that song. So no, you're not, but what can you do? So I did re-record it. I produced a new version of it uh, with uh, David Morgan, the studio singer, and I sang it. He sang lead on it. I sang backup. Uh, and it gave it a little bit more gravitas, uh, but that's all I had to do with that theme song. I didn't, I did not, I did not create okay. the song, but from that, that point on any music on who's the boss, I, I took care of, I created. That makes sense. Now, still going in timeline. This is where I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, you start hitting your stride because that late eighties, early nineties, right before Seinfeld or during, I should say, you had married with children, um, Caroline in the city. And then later on, it was Will and Grace, perfect strangers in that timeline. And I want to keep Seinfeld separate. Um, uh, only but, be only because you invited me to correct you. If you're wrong, I was right. not the composer on perfect strangers. Okay. I, I, I had been, this is before I was a full-time, I, I had to earn the title full-time composer. Right. And before that, while I was doing chores, there was a particular episode on Perfect Strangers where we actually hear an, a real performance of Balky's Dance of Yoy. Yeah. And uh, I think my memory is, is that the the credit composers showed up on stage with it and the director did not like it and i could see why he didn't like it so i i happened to be around i mean i had other chores going on around there so i whipped out my little pad and pencil handed it to the musicians and that my little composition i wrote there became the dance of joy on perfect strangers but that was the only connection i ever had to perfect strangers i was not on staff i was not the composer so let me all okay. those other shows i did and and just in case listeners are, listeners are confused I, I was the composer on 75 primetime network tv series mm -hmm. i wrote the themes for 44 of those series so for, for the example one Mary thing children which you mentioned famously i did not write the song Love and Marriage. It was written before I was born. Oh, obviously. Yeah. But what I'm getting at, um, with Perfect Strangers, and yeah, Mary with that song that that's been out for a while, but with Perfect Strangers, yeah, the thing that you did was like one of the signature components of one of the main character or the main character. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, that's a that's a good trait. It's a, it, I, you know, I'm happy that I happened to be around that day. It was a good day. It was good timing to be there, but uh, I cannot, obviously it does not show up on any of my resumes because I was not the composer for it. That, okay. Good trade. Good trade. Because now you're, if anything, without that, that season, especially, and I'm dating myself because I know this, especially when they went to Balky's home country and they started doing it all the time. Like you had to reference that song in a good, maybe half of the episodes. I have no idea. I, I did see okay. cue sheets, future cue sheets from that. Remember I was not 
involved in any of that but Mm -hmm. i i I saw it on cue sheets that hey they're still using that little ditty i wrote yeah but uh again i i don't want to to take away from the credit of the good composers who actually were on that show and i did have 75 of my own i don't need to claim theirs now here's where and this is my last question because we're about to go seinfeld heavy oh good i'm i'm ready all right so I, i wanted to not make you quote unquote the just Seinfeld guy. But we'll we'll get to Seinfeld everything in a second. But when your run that late 70s, 90s run, early 90s, I should say, there were a lot of good theme songs that and I kind of alluded to this earlier. And I'm very curious what and there is no right answer to this. And, but I just want to see your insight. In your opinion, what makes a hit theme song for a TV show? And the second part of that question, why are they so rare now? I mean, like, <laughs> it's just, you turn on TV, it's not even the themes. And to some degree, it's not even music. The show just starts with a cold open. That's true in a lot of shows, but there are also some, some really good themes out there today. I should qualify that the value of a good series theme a unique memorable unmistakably recognizable series theme can serve as a signature for the show a viewer hears a familiar theme sometimes from another room with their head in the refrigerator and there's a pavlovian response Ooh, mm-hmm. let's watch that yeah and theme theme music also has entertainment value as a presentation tool just as the theater curtain and the announcer before a performance prepare the audience for an entertainment experience. TV theme music announces each episode and heightens your sense of anticipation and draws you into that mind space you visit while watching the show. Although, you know, I don't know, for example, on the tonight show, we all know who the tonight show host is, but when the announcer announces that name, it makes right. the entrance more exciting somehow. And hopefully a series theme music accomplishes the same when it introduces each episode. Okay. Okay. I Was mean, that too that, flowery? It, you mentioned it and you're right. But, and since we're talking about tonight's show, like the roots, even now, the hey, 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 I like that version. It is morphed and changed over time obviously but um there are a few themes that are still out there but the reason is it's just rare meanwhile when you talk about another era in television they were so plentiful even bad shows quote-unquote bad shows had awesome theme songs so i mean it's kind of a give and take thing it's just something maybe it's a personal thing with me that i just wish that a little bit more i wish that came back a little bit more that's all you mentioned bad shows with with good <laughs> themes. Yeah. Let me tell you, if you look if you look at my credits list, it's like a long death list of failed show titles. You can see you can see behind me that long trail of mushroom clouds and mm-hmm. blast craters behind me. You can course the chart chart the course of my career by that disaster path. A lot of my favorite themes died like a tree in the forest 
what was your favorite thing that you just feel like ah this this, this was it and then the show ended immediately i gotta know what show oh, what was there it were, there were There's several no of answers. them your mind can change uh, I, I really enjoyed working on and i was happy with my work on the theme for boston common which was i a, love that show it was Clark. a clever little show yeah exactly anthony rocked that show as did the rest of the cast it was cleverly written yeah. it was a tight a tight little show and it it performed in the ratings okay but at that time sam oh yeah. okay that's on nbc i remember that yeah okay wasn't good enough i mean we ruled the airwaves and i was a part of that i was part of several of those tentpole shows yeah for, and so, unfortunately, Boston Common, which would have been a hit on any other network at the time, mm-hmm. uh, got released. And the good news is those same writers, Max and Dave, instantly, while they still had a crew and still had people, said, oh, we got this other show. And we all just kind of hopped on over to the new show, which was Will and Grace. That's beautiful. But, From the ashes is the phoenix that arose was Will and Grace. And I got to create a lot of very naughty piano music for that show. And a lot of like Will and Grace, uh, a part of being that musty TV family, you got to talk about the big boy. And that is Seinfeld. Because mm. This was the Jonathan Wolf stamp. Like, hey. This is new. This is different. This is this. You're like I said. You're the unofficial member of the team. You changed Yo, the di- dynamic of the show. You you just did. And I gotta know how did that start? How did that come about? How did you get that job? During my chores years. Whenever there was an industry-wide strike, which happens in Hollywood every few years, I would take my thimble full of talent and my skill set and go on the road, do rock and roll tours, conduct for Vegas acts. And two of my Vegas acts, Tom Jones and Diana Ross, shared the same opening act, a brilliant comedian named George Wallace. Yay! George, George and I became really, really good friends. We became tight, and whenever we we he came back to L.A. after that, we I'd go with him. He'd buy me dinner, and I'd go with him to the comedy clubs and accompany him. I wrote songs for his little act, and it was fun. I it's not a little act. I wrote little songs for okay. his big act, and he and I remained tight for all the years after that. And it turns out years later that Jerry Seinfeld in real life has a best friend named George. It's George Wallace. Mm. And that is how I met Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry called me. George told me, can my buddy Jerry call you? And I said, sure. Any friend of George. And uh, by the way, yesterday was also George Wallace's birthday. So he and I chatted a little bit and he okay. was having dinner with Jerry last night. So there's, there's all, this is all fresh in my it's mind. Just, at the moment. It's just, it's all connected. Yeah. Oh, man. So Jerry called me and he said they were having trouble with music. I was not the first composer on 
what was then called the Seinfeld Chronicles. There was another guy before me, and for him, I have nothing but respect. Even the best major league hitters sometimes ground out. It happens. And he swung hard and missed. Uh, so it was next my turn at bat. And Jerry called me, and he described to me the opening of this weird little show he, he and Larry were trying to make. And he said it was the opening was Jerry doing stand-up comedy in a comedy club in front of a group of people. And he tells jokes, and they laugh. And he wanted signature, quirky theme music to go with it. Now, remember, in the late 80s, a lot of theme music was kind of dopey. A lot of sassy saxophones and yeah. silly lyrics. Guilty, by the way. I created a bunch of that kind of music. But it was not going to work for this application. And I told Jerry, that that sounds like an audio conflict. So how about this? And we're still on the phone. How about if we treat your human voice telling jokes as the melody of the Seinfeld theme? And my job, Jerry, will be to accompany you in a musical way, in a fun, quirky way that does not interfere with the audio of your monologue that you're delivering. Uh, every time you do a different monologue, it'll be a variation on the theme. Come on over. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. And he came over. It was a Saturday. I was there by myself. And I, I showed him. I said, you know, the human organic quality of your voice telling jokes might go well with the human organic quality of my finger snaps and lips and tongue noises like this. Hey. And at any pitch, and Sam, you've done it hundreds, maybe thousands of pitches. Yeah. You know that there's a point during the pitch where you've got to grab their attention so they're not looking around at anything else. And that was my moment for Jerry. And I had his attention because in 1989, that was music from Mars. And sampling technology was in its infancy. And I really, really, really wanted to put it to work. So I showed him how, how I do that. And I built a little groove like the one you just heard out of these samples of my lips and tongues and stuff. And then I created Frankenstein sampling versions of a slap bass. Mm -hmm. And at the time, slap bass had not yet enjoyed celebrity status as a solo lead instrument. Yeah, it was buried it was in funk cool. music at the time. You know, yep. Larry Graham had been doing it for a while. I didn't invent it, but it, it was buried in a mix. And it was it was cool, and it, it percolated a lot of great tunes. But I put it on the table and illuminated it and used it as a lead instrument to punctuate his jokes, his lines, his lead-ups. It was such a basic bass line so simple so sophomoric that it did not require meter did not require four bars four beats of the bar i could stop it and start it to allow for jerry's punchlines and the lengths of his jokes and i weaved these bass rim shots we'll call them into yeah. each monologue and i knew that that was going to obligate me to create a new piece of music for each monologue and that was okay it was kind of a fun assignment and i really wanted to try that it, i'd never heard of a anyone accompanying monologues before and creating uh, musical 
elements, Lego style, that can be modularly manipulated to fit around comedy. I'd never heard of that before, and I wanted to try it. And here's the big deal. It was an order of four episodes. That's not an order. That's an insult. So I figured, you know, network's not really behind this show. They're only ordering. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I've done a lot of work for a lot of years on a lot of shows. It's the only time in my entire career where I've ever heard of an order of four episodes. That's pitiful. But um, that was how it was born. And Jerry liked it. I, I, he had brought with him, at my request, some video of him doing stand-up so I could show him how it works, how it okay. functions as a theme. And, man, he really liked it. And remember, this is 1989, so there's no Zoom. There's no. Mm. So he held the phone up to the speakers when he called Larry David and held the phone up to the speakers and played it for him through the phone. Larry approved it. In, in in that moment and uh that's how it was born on that day it was again a good day at work now you said something about this and i always used to think i was crazy and maybe you can confirm this i used to think um and still do um every episode of seinfeld the theme is slightly different it it they're all different. True. True. That's well, true. True, because every monologue was all different. Right. There's length, different lengths right. of the overall monologue, and the jokes are all different. So I had to architect uh, a different presentation of those elements to go along with and complement each monologue. So, yeah, it was a chore I got. I think I got them on Tuesday nights and turned it back in on Wednesday nights. So it was a good overnight project for me. Remember, okay. there were at the time not – computer there there was no digital audio so i had to create these using human computing powers right every week i always used to think i'm like is that me or well maybe it's just this one episode or and like the music during the show like some of the stuff that i just personally love is like you start taking the quirks of everyone else and there's elements of the music, not just the theme, but the music of, let's take a guy like Kramer, who's just quirky manifested into a human being, but like little stuff he was doing, like a little pimp walk. He was, he was a pimp for like an episode when he started dressing up and like, you he, he was an accidental pimp. Exactly. Exactly. And, and he sc- got punished for that for that cultural insensitivity too. He got arrested for it. <laughs> Remember the last scene? I'm not a pimp. <laughs> right, right. But and by the way, I I contributed to that slur fest with my pimp wop music. Hey, hey Sam, do you <laughs> mind if I do a sh- a shameless plug right now? Please go ahead. Please go ahead. The Seinfeld soundtrack album is out. And of course, of course, a fan favorite scene like that is on the record, as are a bunch of other weird Kramer moments. Since you brought up the Kramer moments, mm-hmm. there's the the chase music on on Seinfeld. Serious cinematic chases became a comedy trope on the show. Right. There were a number of them. Uh, and but my favorite of all of them was the cable guy chasing 
Kramer. Right, right. I remember that. Episode. And so I had to choose. I couldn't have an album full of chase music, but I did choose that one uh, to be on the album. And I also chose the one where Jerry is chasing Newman through the building is on the album to that. And I treated them as if they were serious action movie chases uh, just because that seemed to fit as a good counterpoint to the ridiculous silliness that was going on on screen. And that helped elevate the comedy. It was a trick that I, I didn't learn it, but it was reinforced to me by watching the Simpsons, how Alf Clausen would treat mm. some of the silliest moments with very serious underscore and it worked. It elevated the comedy. So there's plenty of that on the soundtrack album. It's available digitally so far. It's not in physical form, but you can find it wherever you get digital music. And I'll make sure we put that at the front and back of the podcast and posting as well. I appreciate um, it. Look at this. I'm reduced to being a shill. No, you look, that is your claim to fame. The reason I wanted to talk about Seinfeld separately, I'm glad you talked about the soundtrack. I have heard this. Well, I own the soundtrack. I have heard it. Oh, I good. Am, You're the one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I am good with it. Um, one of the things, because since you were big in the music of that, not just your own personal things, but you were the curator of music during the show. And some of the music that you have done, you have now, fans like myself, have tattooed different moments of that. Like, I can't hear Earth, Wind, and Fire without thinking about the Elaine dance. Uh, agreed. Me too. When I, when I hear Shining Star. Yeah. When I hear Shining Star from Earth, Wind, and Fire, there is a little chuckle. For starters, it's a great song. But the absurdness of her dancing with that song. And I'm like, wow. Because even though the whole point is that she can't dance. It somehow moves with the rhythm of the song. She's snapping her fingers. She's doing all the no-nos you're supposed to do while dancing. Did the elbow thing. It it I now when I even today, if I heard that song right now, I'm thinking about the Elaine dance. Yeah. Just to clarify, I, I was not the one who chose that. If it was up to me, I would have written a particular song for that. And I probably did, but that became a weird point of focus and contention in the production office and at the studio and network level. It was just so broad. The comedy was just so weird. Why would all of a sudden Elaine look like she was having, I don't know, some kind of seizure. Right. I buy a full body heave said the they music. said it was a full body dry heave yeah <laughs> dry heave, yeah um so my music editor jack diamond who is my right hand man and truly a genius he came up with there were probably 30 different choices for that scene remember there's no dialogue over it right. so we could replace the music however we wanted and so he, i my memory is is that i didn't even go to the meeting he went and presented his choices in picture with it and they chose Shining Star. And at this point, we had a little money. We could we could afford the master license. Now, I'm curious about this. Seinfeld was, that's your baby. That's where, I mean, all your work culminated into this massive show. And your fingerprints were all on it. I was always 
I always want to know, have that kind of became like a, for lack of a better term, just just a mule stone or albatross for you because you were unofficially known as the quirky music guy for a good chunk of that time. Yeah, um, I was I was flavor of the month for a long time. So if you're quote unquote quirky music guy, did that stop future things or did people look back at your work or was it kind of like he could do this and he could do this too? Or were you just typecast as quirky music guy for a good chunk of time? I didn't care what you called me as long as you called me. It, it was a, it was a calling card and it was in my deck. So I played it over and over again. And I liked that a lot of my music was weird and unusual. And it, it gave after Seinfeld became a hit, mm-hmm. it gave me a lot of latitude. People were willing to hear with open ears music that normally for me that normally they wouldn't have because to create a new species of music requires breaking some rules and not everyone in the approval food chain is open to such risk taking, but because of the success of Seinfeld, it gave, it opened the door for me to do some more of that. Now Seinfeld is 30 plus years ago. I retired in 2005 and since then, yes, most of those other, you call it an albatross, I'll call it a badge of honor. Right. Most of those have fallen away. And what we're left with is my connection to Seinfeld. And I'm proud of it and I'm happy for it. And I actually propagate it. Uh, my web, website, all my social media is Seinfeld Music Guy. Anyone, anyone who wants to Come join me on Instagram. That's how you find me. So I so embrace you on music, just all Seinfeld music guy, all of it. I thought it was just Instagram. No, Instagram is Seinfeld music guy. Same thing for Facebook. And I just started using Reddit because I did yesterday an AMA. I had to look that up. It's ask me anything. And that's also my handle there. YouTube, same thing. It, I'm easy to find. Okay. It's it's subtle, right, Sam? Yeah, Sam, very. Very subtle. Uh, so I embrace that, that at the end of all, you know, 75 series plus all the ones I did before I was a composer, I'm happy that that's the one that people remember me for. Because as I said, that was kind of a Camelot era of TV and yep. a highlight era of my career. Now, is one more I remember you from? Um, and this is, I affectionately called it because you have that background, whether it been pop music, funk music, soul music, then the TV world. But one of the things that it should get more shine that I, I thought, because I, just me as a fan of this show, you wrote the theme for the first two seasons of uh, D.O. Hugh, the Hughleys on ABC. And this was like the tail end of TGI Friday. This was the tail end of that. We're all growing up. Uh, I had stuff to do on Friday nights now. I'm I'm kind of, I'm a teenager now. But I remember your theme specifically because of the slap bass element of of that theme where I was just kind of like, hey, this is a Seinfeld copycat. 
And then you look at the notes. <laughs> oh, well, this is why it's a Seinfeld copycat, because the same guy who made it. So were there other themes? Well, obviously, you made other themes, but it plays such a, such a role in you that it kind of jumped and weaved its way in the other projects. Yeah, the, uh, the slap bass was in that production, but it was not a key role. It was not featured. It was buried in the mix like it should have been. Mm -hmm. uh, I had, at that point, one of my longtime employees, Paul Buckley, who is just a masterful musician, uh, he had elevated himself to be a collaborator with me. And my memory is, is that we were not supposed to do the theme for the Hughleys. Uh, DL was friends with somebody who was going to have do it. And I said, that's cool. We'll do the episodes, but here's a little placeholder, a temporary one until it shows up. And the producers really liked it. So it, it became the accidental theme for the Hughleys. And my memory is, is that Paul had more to do with it than I did. Uh, and I knew Daryl from before he and I had done, again, this is a failed series, but a wonderful series with a theme that I'm really proud of, a show called Double Rush. I vaguely remember that. Wasn't that yeah, the John bike Pastorelli. messengers? It was Yeah, something. yeah, exactly. Ah! Exactly. And Diane English hired me as my first project for Diane English, which she is, you know, a legend. She's a titan of comedy. She created Murphy Brown. And she hired me and let me run with it. Remember, this was sampling technology was still not real mainstream. And I pitched her this. What if I sample my bike? If I take sounds from the bike, the bike can make all of the derailleur clunking, the tires squealing and the chain and all these different things a bike sounds a bike make. And when you ride a bike, there's something rhythmic and hypnotic about the sounds that the bike's making with your body it becomes with you and the sound of your breathing. And, and so I pitched that to her that I'm going to build a frantic, high energy, frazzle theme song for you, for you built around that. And then I incorporated into it the sounds of the city whizzing by and Doppler effects and people shouting and horn honks and jackhammers like New York City sounds. And from the, from the time of that meeting until it was done, Diane English left me alone until it was done. And I called her up and said, Diane, you ready for a listen? And she came over, she sat down at my console and I pushed play and she was kind of blown away. And she said, let me hear that again. And I played it through again. And she goes, thank you. We're done. She placed confidence in her. And this is a lesson to all you producer, director people out there, filmmaker people. Hire someone that you have confidence in. You don't hire a dog, then teach it how to bark. Hmm. You let the dog bark. So she did that, and it's kind of rare that that happens. Usually got people saying, oh, the music should sound like. And it doesn't matter how that sentence ends, Sam, because it's already derivative music because it sounds like. Right. She did not do that. She had faith. There was no demo. I couldn't demo. I hadn't built the instrument yet. I had to build the plane while I was flying it to create this bicycle thing. 
And it was awesome. Then she turned it over to a an unknown young gorilla filmmaker named Spike Jones. Oh, whatever happened to him? Man. Oh, big no, huge, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, <laughs> huge blockbuster giant film director. But at the time, he went out on his skateboard and grabbed hold of taxis, no permits. He just, you know, did gorilla filmmaking and and built well, with my theme in his headphones, by the way, and he built this amazing main title around this music that I made. And so that was a very satisfying project. And it was one of those failed shows that no one ever saw. And but it it was my first time meeting D.L. Hughley, uh, who was a very young, hot. I mean, he was just on fire uh, on camera. And so later, when the Hughleys came about, I was really happy to see him starring in his own show. And now, of course, he's he is, you know, everywhere. He is yeah. a spokesperson for smart people everywhere. Uh, but that that is the Hughleys was a fun job, too. We started on ABC and I think we continued on UPN. Does that yeah. sound right? Yeah, I think that it was a switch in there. I remember that. Um, well, I, yeah, and I it was fun, to... except we did that one r- ridiculous episode that was a Jack and the Beanstalk thing because it was a thing in those days to do musical episodes. <laughs> we did we did one and it was fun and it was challenging. Um and we got it got greenlit while I was it at the hospital having my second child with my wife. So I turned that episode over to Paul in case anyone is familiar with the Jack and the Beanstalk mm-hmm. episode. Paul Buckley wrote most of those songs. And I, I picked up the last few after I got out of the hospital. In theory, you had two babies that day. I did. Well, <laughs> it was it was a, a weird time to be having kids and be doing 10, 12 episodes a week. Okay. Well, I'm curious. Um, you were doing great in your career. It's awesome. What made you decide to just hang it up, retire? What, what made you want to put your jersey in the rafters? I did it. I'm done. I'm curious. What What was the thing? What? Well, nice segue because I just talked about having a kid. Um, working that many shows, you don't get 75 shows by doing them one at a time. So mm-hmm. I was working ridiculously long hours, getting all this music out for all these shows. And that's really good for business, but not good for one's home life. Ah. And my wife and I, we were just having way too many kids. And <laughs> we agreed that at some point those kids needed me more than Hollywood needed more of my music. Uh, we had plenty of money, so we picked a date. This was the year 2000, and we said five years. Everybody, five years. I told my clients. I told my employees. 2005, Wolf Becomes a Pumpkin, and I went into Hollywood Witness Protection in 2005, and we mm. moved to back to Kentucky, uh, where I became a normal, quiet life, stay-at-home dad, PTA room parent field trip chaperone sports coach volunteer and that is why i pulled the plug now it was a little bit sad in 2005 to walk away from some really hot shows there was one more year of will and grace yeah. i walked away from it and there was one there was reba 
how much fun was it to work for Reva McIntyre? Yeah, that that was she, that was like one of the last good theme songs. That where yeah. that era of time. Oh, I remember that. Well, to clarify, that theme song is a song off of one of her records. Right, right, right. But, but I rearranged it and I, I, I created the recording of it. Uh, but when it was time for me Survivor. to leave, what's that? No, the name of the song, Survivor. It's a remix. Correct, yeah. 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 yeah, I did not write that song. Uh, but Reba understood and she wished me well. As did the Will and Grace people. So we left. And, you know, my folks at my office were highly trained, well qualified to take over all of those assignments. And so I gave away my clients before I shut the door. So I had nothing to come back to anyway. It was kind of retirement insurance. And that's what I did for the next 10 years or so. You're probably good at math, Sam, and mm-hmm. you realize those kids are now grown and they don't need me 24-7. So I've started doing new things. Like I, I, when they went away to college, I could no longer bring them glue sticks and you know, right. juice boxes to their class. So I started lecturing at their colleges as a guest lecturer. And that kind of became wildfire and I became a full-time college lecturer a really failed retiree. Uh, <laughs> by the way, here's here's a useless factoid, Sam. I have lectured at every Ivy League school. That's cool. And that we're including law schools. I've lectured at Harvard Law and Cornell Law, UPenn Law, Columbia Law. Most of my lectures before COVID were law schools. Well, I know that's weird too because I never went to college, but. Well, but here's the thing. I was just about to get there. I was just like, it's this the thing. You learned the business um, kind of in the guerrilla style yourself. You took away, you didn't go to college, but you got a chance to have firsthand experience. And I guess it's good that not only did you lecture or teach law, because instead of quote unquote, knowing the books, you were operating from those rules from a very, you know, hands-on place in your life. Correct. Yeah. And that, and that is the approach I take. I don't come at it as a legal expert because yeah, like Harvard law needs another legal genius. Uh, But uh, more from the standpoint of I, the way it was applied in my career and my view of intellectual properties, copyrights, contractual rights, publishing, licensing, royalties, those subjects I became expert on through, the, I mean, I, I wasn't representing anybody else. It was me and my income and my family involved. So I became fairly well versed at those intricacies. And that's why they invite me to do that. And I, I do some corporate Speaking and performing now, I also do concerts. I don't know if you've seen any of my ridiculous videos on Instagram at the piano, but I have, uh, I, I have actually, I, I still play pretty good. So I incorporate those business teachings into my corporate performances. Again, this is all before COVID, uh, yeah. but someday I'll get back to it. So that's what I'm doing now. And that's a long answer to your short question, Sam. Mm-hmm. Sorry for blathering hey, and prattling that, feel free to edit this down however no, I, you want no, i want the whole thing because <laughs> counting on is, you to make me sound lucid 
No, it, this is good. Um, I would hope that a lecturer can talk. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things, and we're we're wrapping it up, and I, I saw your TED Talk, and I learned a lot from that, but I know a lot of people are listening who may be that 17-year-old wide-eyed kid who are are good at anything. And now, in this age, when you talk about copyright and patents and learning things, because everyone in the age of social media, you got a YouTube page, you it's it's welcome for you to create TikTok, whatever you got. So I guess what I'm asking is what advice would you give that 17-year-old wide-eyed kid who think they're good at a thing and probably try to forge a career like you did? What would you say to them? The same thing I said to my son, who, like me, is kind of short and scrawny. But when he was seven years old, he wanted to he planned to be in the NBA. I said, tell you what, if you get seven million dollars for your rookie career before you go to college, because at the time you could do that. Right. Seven million dollars. If it's six million something. No, you go to college. But if it's seven million or more, you take that seven million. I'll help you invest it. And when that career ends, you can go back to college. I would give the same type of advice is that if you are already, if you've got an acumen for it, if you've got a following, if you're making money, real money, career money on this, go for it. College is not for everyone, but in the absence of that clear path to success, go to college. It's really fun. It's wonderful. It's what I love about going to all these college campuses as a guest lecturer is that this is a real growth spurt for a lot of young people. Take advantage of that, gain more experience, get more connections. Don't follow my footsteps because here is uh, telling truth. I did not exhale until I retired. Because I knew I did not have a college degree. I had no fallback. I'm only good at one thing music. And if that didn't work out, I'm tearing tickets at a tilt a whirl. Yep. So I get it. I, I totally understand. Um, well, Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for just taking some time out, just being on the podcast. This is a great talk. I, I feel great about this. That I will make sure give the big plug one more time. It's called the Seinfeld soundtrack. You can get it wherever digital music can be found. I I welcome you to listen to it. Mainly, I welcome you to listen to it and go back and watch the corresponding shows. That's how that's how deep I went. And it's was, real and it's spectacular. Yes, it is. I Jackie Charles me. Oh man. No, um, no, that's not Jackie. That was Terry Hatcher, but you believe well, me. I got... Hold on, wait, hold on. She did say it. Terry said it, but he was the um, foil at the end of the episode when they tried to find out um, where it's just like, they are real. Because, or excuse me, end of the series, not episode. She, man, I could sit down and talk Seinfeld with you all. Oh, right, right, because he ends up in bed with, with Terry exactly. Hatcher. Exactly, exactly. Comp- Completely right in the finale. I totally blanked on that. You're right. Yeah. He answered that question that was that they were trying to find out. <laughs> oh man. Like 
Even even little stuff like that. Like, um, and I'll, I'll give you this. I tried the weekend warrior this week. Uh-huh. And um, you know, just out in the yard doing yard work. I um bumped my knee. And um I went to uh Rite Aid and I got Tiger Bomb. Me and my <laughs> brother went Who told back- you to put the bomb on? Who told you to put the bomb on? I didn't tell you to put the bomb on. Oh my we we do that. That that show is so just ingrained in the lexicon of how we operate. Just like I'm talking about me and my brother, but I'm so sure throughout just whoever watched it, you're taking away a chip of that with you and you're going to use it in your like double dip. Who told you to double dip the chip? That's like putting your whole mouth in the dip. Exactly. Oh, my God. I could talk Seinfeld with you all day. <laughs> oh, I don't want to do this, that. I speak sign language. Yeah, we're good. I have that book. <laughs> That's Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. One more time. I really Welcome. enjoyed this. And you are so good looking. <laughs> this was awesome. The Seinfeld soundtrack. Get it, whatever you get music. Um, thanks again. And, um, Oh, man, this was awesome. Thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Have a good one, Jonathan. So there you have it. That was a great interview with Jonathan Wolf. The project is called the Seinfeld Soundtrack. Check him out on all things at the SeinfeldMusicGuy.com and all things. Seinfeld music guy on whatever social media service that you want to show up. Man, this was a joy. This was a great interview. And you know who likes great interviews and quite honestly love Seinfeld? My boys at the Act Accordingly Podcast. Check them out. Act Accordingly Podcast with Bash and Z. Check them out. I know they're loving it. They may even have something to say about this because I know they rock with Seinfeld too, man. It's such a great show. And, um, they, check them out. They do good stuff over there. I'm gonna be nice to them because we got company over. I like, I like, I like me- making fun of all of them, but the Act Corling Podcast for Bash and Z. Speaking of things podcast, you can get everything related to the Just Talk with Sam podcast at samshownation.com. Your home for everything related to the Just Talk with Sam podcast. It's right there. It's all right there. Um, you want to talk to me personally on Twitter? I'm Sam Show 11 on the Twitter and just talk with Sam. No GN talking. Just talk with Sam at Gmail. Just talk with Sam. No GN talking. Just talk with Sam at Instagram and Facebook. One more time. The project is called the Seinfeld soundtrack by my guest, Mr. Jonathan Wolf. Get it wherever you find music on the internet. And quite honestly, I, I can't thank him enough, the Seinfeld music guy on all of his socials. And that's it. I'm wrapping it up. I will see you guys next week. Peace out.